0: I V M. Being nice to the rocket man hasn't worked in 25 years. Why would it work now? Clinton failed, Bush failed, and Obama failed. I won't fail. North Korean leader Kim Jong-un just stated that the nuclear button is on his desk at all times, Will someone from his depleted and food-starved regime please inform him that I too have a nuclear button, but it is a much bigger and more powerful one than his, and my button works. (whistles) Sanctions and other pressures are beginning to have a big impact on North Korea. Soldiers are dangerously fleeing to South Korea. Rocketman now wants to talk to South Korea for first time. Perhaps that is good news. Perhaps not. We will see. I am pleased to inform you that Secretary of State Mike Pompeo is in the air and on his way back from North Korea with the three wonderful gentlemen that everyone is looking so forward to meeting. They seem to be in good health. Also, good meeting with Kim Jong-un. Date and place set. It was announced today by the U.S. Treasury, that additional large-scale sanctions would be added to those already existing sanctions on North Korea. I have today ordered the withdrawal of those additional sanctions. Welcome to States of Anarchy, a podcast on global affairs and foreign policy. I'm your host, Hamsani Hariharan. What you just listened to were a bunch of tweets from American President Donald Trump over the last two years. Trump and Kim Jong-un, the supreme leader of North Korea, have met twice over the last year. There have been a patchwork of meetings between leaders in China, South Korea, Japan and Russia, all about North Korea. Meanwhile, North Korea has been testing missiles and following up with its own diplomacy. I wanted to navigate through the recent nuclear tensions on the Korean Peninsula. And my guest for today is the perfect guide. Scott Snyder is a senior fellow for Korea Studies and Director of the Program on U.S. Korea Policy at the Council on Foreign Relations. He's authored numerous books and book chapters about various aspects of the Korean Peninsula. I managed to sit down with Mr. Snyder on the sidelines of the Asan Plenum, a conference held in Seoul, so the audio may be a little wonky in places. Before we begin the interview, let's take a short break.
1: Hi, everybody. Welcome to another incredible week on the IVM Podcast Network. If you are not following us on social media, please make sure you do. We're IVM Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. A couple of messages up top. First, we're hiring right now. We're looking to hire a producer, we're looking to hire copywriters, we're looking to hire an audio engineer, we're looking for web developers, we're looking for business people. If you're looking to work at IBM, which in my opinion is probably one of the best places to work at, then please do send us an application. Also, please do download our app if you're not listening to it on our app. Our app is available on the Play Store. And I also want to thank our sponsors this month, uh, Savari, Storytel, and Paytm Money. Thank you very much for supporting us on Pesavesa, Anupam continues his conversation with Kunal Shah, founder and CEO of Cred, a members-only app which gives you exclusive rewards for paying your credit card bill. On the Filter Coffee podcast, Ronnie Skruwala joins Karthik Nagarajan to talk about his early days as an entrepreneur and what has kept him going during adversities. And if that's not enough Ronnie Skruwala for you, listen to his podcast, the Ronnie Skruwala Podcast, where Ronnie talks to me about the benefits and disadvantages of being an outsider, building a brand identity and the learnings from collaborating with business giants across the world. In the Season 2 finale of Echoes of India, Anirudh discusses the end of India's Hunnic Wars and the emergence of some of the most dynamic and powerful people and states in Indian history. It's been a great season. If you haven't caught it yet, check out the entire season. On our Parsi food show, not just Dansak, we have a very special guest. Kanaz Mesman, the owner of Theo Broma. She talks to Persian about keeping the cooking process basic and simple. On the ATKT Talent Tent, Piman Man and Krupa are joined by slam poet Malvika. She talks about how poetry helps her cope with anxiety. On Equity Sahih, brought to you by Motilal Oswald Asset Management, Shreed Lunkar is in conversation with Anupam about life insurance in India. On Golgappa, Trupti is in conversation with Mayur More of TVF Kota Factory fame. He talks about his early days as a theatre artist and shares stories from the sets of Kota Factory. And with that, let's get you on with your show.
0: Welcome back to States of Anarchy. I'm Hamsini Hariharan and I'm in conversation with Scott Snyder about recent tensions in the Korean Peninsula. Hi, Mr. Snyder. Thank you for speaking with me. Welcome to States of Anarchy.
2: Thank you so much for the invitation.
0: Um, We're sitting in Seoul, and I'm thinking over the last year, there have been so many summits, there have been meetings between policymakers of the United States and North Korea. Where would you say the starting point for the current negotiations and situation goes back to? Do we go back to... January 2018, when Kim Jong-un was saying he was going to mass-produce nuclear weapons, should we go earlier back to 1994? Should we go all the way back to the Korean War? How would you say the starting point
2: is? Hmm. Um, that's a great question. I mean, in terms of the current diplomatic efforts, uh, I think we have to look at it in the context of the Trump administration and the reinitiation of a dialogue with North Korea in January of 2018. But, of course, the issues that are involved in the U.S., North Korea relationship, have a history. And uh, the U.S.-North Korea relationship is the longest running hostile relationship that the U.S. has with any country around the world. And so the baggage that goes all the way back to the Korean War is also part of what is on the table to be addressed. And of course, that's complicated because the U.S. primarily today Views the challenge associated with North Korea in nuclear terms. Mm-hmm. But the North Koreans have a more historical perspective. And so, of course, they go back to uh, the nature of the relationship as it was defined in the context of pre-Korean War, Korean War, and aftermath. Yes,
0: because I think for the Koreans also, it's a matter yeah. of survival of their state,
2: isn't it? Uh, certainly there is a regime survival um Priority uh, for North Korea for the leadership, and of course, it's a unique leadership in terms of the uh, the nature of the system uh, and uh, the feeling, perhaps, of isolation that has developed in the context of post Cold War developments. And so, you know, those issues are all there on the table as the baggage behind the relationship. And for the North Koreans, I think, in terms of the way that they are thinking about the process, they're acutely aware of that history. For the Trump administration, perhaps not so much. And so it's just another aspect of the asymmetry or the gap in perspective that actually has to be bridged as part of the challenge of um, moving forward with a sustainable dialogue process between the two countries.
0: And what is the Trump administration doing
2: differently? Are their objectives different? Uh, is their strategy different? I guess the question is whether you view it in the context of U.S. past diplomatic efforts toward North Korea. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, in that sense, I would say that uh, the overriding post Cold War U.S. objective vis a vis North Korea has been the denuclearization challenge. Uh, and in a way, I think that the North Korean frustration is that the U.S. has defined the relationship with North Korea through the lens of the nuclear challenge without reference, really, to the deeper context of past hostility. So you go back and look at the default North Korean position over decades, and you can see, you know, some of the problems that come just in sitting at the table. Because the U.S. is focused on uh, the nuclear problem. The North Koreans are saying, well, we have to deal with the relationship. First, we have to deal with the enmity and the hostility that we feel from the United States as a prerequisite to dealing with some of these other issues. And so North Korea calls upon the United States to make a bold switchover. They actually call upon the United States to normalize the relationship as a prerequisite for dealing with the nuclear issue. Uh, And just to make a comparative observation, I think this is particularly interesting because if you look at the way that uh, the U.S. ended up dealing with Iran, the JCPOA negotiation, essentially what that, I think, was in the end was an arms control agreement in which both sides uh, reserved the right to hate each other in a way. But for the North Koreans, in our past uh, interactions and negotiating efforts, the North Koreans have always identified a need to transform the relationship as a component of what they wanted on the table. And so if we go back, for instance, to the early 1990s, the agreed framework between the U.S. and North Korea, which was really the solution to the first North Korean nuclear crisis, there was a denuclearization component, but it stood alongside a set of commitments to try to normalize the diplomatic relationship between the two countries.
0: Just because you brought up the JCPOA, um, since President Trump did announce the bailout of the agreement, how much of that do you think informs the North Korea situation?
2: Um, Well, I've been of the opinion that uh, the impact of the North Korea situation on negotiation, of the JCPOA, is the main direction in which the influence has flowed rather than the reverse. Uh, Primarily, well, primarily because um, North Korea is further along in its program. And so I think the lessons learned from interacting with North Korea as it moved towards trying to achieve nuclear status are more relevant in terms of what Iran might have learned from the North Korean experience than what North Korea can take from uh, watching what the U.S. has done with Iran. There are a couple of elements that I think could be relevant under certain circumstances. One is the question of whether the North Koreans might be better off trying to address this issue in a multilateral framework or not. But the North Koreans so far seem to be very focused on dealing with the issue uh, bilaterally with the United States. Um,
0: Yes, that was something that I was thinking about. I mean, I think today, at the end of um, April 2019, Uh, You have reports of Kim Jong-un going to go meet Vladimir Putin. um, And, you know, during the summits that he's had with Trump, he's also met with Xi Jinping a couple of times. So he is dealing with this bilaterally. Does this mean that you won't see sort of a resurgence of the P5 plus one framework?
2: Well, in the Korean context, the P5 plus one equivalent is the uh, historic six-party talks framework. And I believe that the six party talks experience has established the idea that there's a de facto framework in which all of those parties have stakes in the issue. But it doesn't necessarily mean that that multilateral format is going to be revived. In fact, I think that under current circumstances, actually, One thing that North Korea and the United States might actually both agree on is the idea that uh, bilateral uh, negotiation is primary. You know, the Bush administration embraced a multilateral approach, really as part of what was then called the ABC policy, the anything but Clinton policy, (laughs) uh, which had been a bilateral uh, approach between the U.S. and North Korea that then involved building support from allies in order to implement And then six-party talks was an effort by the Bush administration to try to frame the issue in a regional context, uh, which also had the benefit of recognizing the regional stakes in security that were involved. And now I think that the Trump administration has kind of reverted to bilateralism, which is really North Korea's default position. But what's really interesting about that is we've got a bilateral interaction between the U.S. and North Korea. On an issue that, as a result of North Korea's progress in developing its nuclear and missile programs, has actually also uh, developed a global dimension. Mm-hmm. And so that's the reason why the UN Security Council resolutions uh, and that framework, you know, also becomes relevant. I, I think that that is a framework that um, is very important. The US is building on it, uh, which is an interesting fact given the apparent preferences for unilateral approaches by the Trump administration. But it's also a fact that the North Koreans are not going to necessarily like. And so there's a little bit of irony in the fact that this has emerged as a global problem in which there are actually global stakeholders uh, and, and regional stakeholders who want to see a resolution of the issue, but they're not directly present uh, at the table. It's all invested in the relationship between Trump and Kim Jong-un.
0: And I'm wondering how sort of regional partners, such as South Korea and Japan, um, or even Taiwan, sort of look at just this bilateral relationship, because they used to be at the table before.
2: Yeah. And I think that that's the reason why, as the U.S. has pursued bilateral negotiations uh, with North Korea, and even leader-level interactions between Trump and Kim Jong-un, how the United States consults with South Korea and Japan, uh, as well as China and Russia, it becomes very important. And I think that is a legacy of the six-party experience, is that there there may not be six-party talks, but there is a six-party framework. Uh, And so I see that uh, active and at work all the time in the respective bilateral consultations uh, that we see around this issue occurring uh, between and among foreign ministry representatives uh, charged uh, with focusing on the North Korea nuclear issue from all of those countries involved.
0: I I agree. Um, When I was thinking of Moon Jae-in's government currently, it's been facing a lot of pressure. They've been facing sort of lower approval ratings for a variety of reasons. But um, how do you think their policy is also shaped? How do you think it affects relations with
2: the U.S.? Well, you know, the South Korean government is the government that really has the most to lose uh, from tension between the United States and North Korea and from the prospect of war. And I think that that fact is what motivated the Moon administration initially to work so hard around the Winter Olympics, really to try to reopen a previously closed pathway to peaceful denuclearization. Because I think that in um, December of 2017, just before the Olympics, you recall that uh, actually the U.S. ambassador to the U.N., Nikki Haley, was uh, publicly stating her anxiety about whether or not uh, international participants and observers should even travel to the Winter Olympics. Yes. Right? And so... The South Koreans felt that keenly uh, as the country that if there was a conflict, and of course at that time, December of 2017, there were also these rumors in the press about a bloody nose. I mean, it really looked like, uh, and I think the, the fact of the matter is that the U.S. and North Korea uh, at that time were on a trajectory toward conflict. Uh, and so what the Moon administration was able to do effectively uh, with cooperation from Kim Jong-un Uh, was to reopen this pathway uh, toward uh, peaceful denuclearization by establishing uh, a set of dialogue channels and by playing uh, a critical intermediary role, especially immediately post-Olympics. That was a very important accomplishment for the Moon administration. I think that it was appreciated both domestically and internationally. And in fact, uh, President Moon got uh, enjoyed very high approval ratings uh, through 2018 in part on the basis of some of those accomplishments. But then, uh, as it turns out, although he was able to effectively put Trump and Kim in touch with each other, I think that it turns out, at least as of today, that maybe at least Trump and Kim personally themselves don't necessarily feel like they need Moon to continue to play that go between role as much.
0: And, and that's a hard place for South Korea to be because they've also, because of the THAAD missiles and the conversation with the that sort of a minor fallout with China, which they then had to deal with. Chinese terrorism groups are still not in on um, today. So that has been a hard place for South Korea to be in.
2: That's right, and also uh South Korea has historically been an ally of the United states uh The United States has a a responsibility for guaranteeing South Korean defense, although South Korea has now emerged through its economic development as a quite capable autonomous actor and so the the role of go between is not a is not a comfortable position uh, for a South Korean leader to be in because Really, a mediating role is is complicated by the fact that uh, there's an alliance relationship. And, you know, historically, we know that mediators don't have to be neutral. But I think it's particularly difficult for a smaller party to play a mediating role with a larger patron Mm. in a relationship defined by enmity. And so I think for the South Korean leader to play that role has been kind of difficult. I think actually the Moon administration was effective in introducing uh, the U.S. and North Korea to each other. But at the same time, you know, we have a phrase, I guess, uh, an idiomatic uh, English phrase, don't shoot the messenger, uh, which I think that uh, illustrates the dangers of attempted mediation Mm -hmm. that South Korea really doesn't need to take on now that there's a channel of dialogue between the U.S. and North Korea. There is a lot of facilitation uh, that South Korea can do in terms of helping to improve communication. (laughs) I mean, we have to remember 2017, the nature of the dialogue between the U.S. and North Korea. It was a a public dialogue between leaders in which both leaders were calling each other names. (laughs) That's right. And there was no uh, underlying Uh, leader-to-leader-level communication in stark contrast to the Cuban missile crisis of the 60s. And so I think that President Moon's contribution just in establishing a basis upon which the U.S. and North Korea at the leader level can have dialogue channels was a very significant contribution. But now that that contribution has been made There's less space for South Korea to play that type of high-level role between leaders. After all, President Trump declares he's in love, and a love triangle is probably not going to work out.
0: (laughs) (laughs) At this point, let's take a break. Hi, I'm Satyajit. Hi, I'm Racheta. We are from the Open Library Project, and we host
1: a podcast called Paperback.
0: Paperback is a podcast where we engage with stalwarts and experts from various industries, suggesting non-fiction titles that contributed to their journey in a big way. We've had guests like Anjali Rena, Dr. Marcus Rani, Dr. Swati Loda, Ambi Parmeswaran, Apurva Damani, and many more on our show, Paperback.
1: Find new episodes every Wednesday on IVM Podcast app, website, or wherever you listen to podcasts.
0: Welcome back after the break. You're listening to States of Anarchy, and I'm Hamsuni Hariharan. So what does North Korea want from these talks? Normalizing relations with the U.S. would be one. Sanctions relief would be another?
2: Clearly, uh, the uh, North Koreans revealed, I think, in the run up to Hanoi that they really wanted sanctions relief. Uh, In fact, that was really important. Uh, The core problem is that even though the Singapore agreement Mm -hmm. declares that both sides are going to work toward complete denuclearization, Um, we still don't have evidence backed by a declared intent to act that North Korea truly wants to achieve complete denuclearization. Instead, it looks like they want a relationship with the United States based on their status as a nuclear state. Another way of putting it is that uh, uh, the North Koreans um, would like to pursue a detente on the basis of the idea that they are establishing a relationship between equals, at least in terms of nuclear status. And yet the U.S. objective that Kim Jong-un has agreed to is complete denuclearization. So in the run-up to Hanoi, I think the core problem that we really had is the U.S. was aiming to define and make concrete a pathway to complete denuclearization, but what the North Koreans brought with them was actually an indeterminate pathway that looked like partial denuclearization.
0: Yes, one of the talks fell apart because I think it was suggested that North Korea did seem that Libya did, and from um, Germany, and Um on. But is denuclearization something that North Korea is willing to do? Is it something that they're pledging to do that we don't know how, what shape that would take?
2: Well, we have the words, but we don't have the commensurate actions. Uh, and I take the point that there are some in the Trump administration who have uh, identified a, a model for North Korea's denuclearization that represents too high a bar. But I still see the sticking point in Hanoi as the fact that what the North Koreans brought with them did not involve a pathway to complete denuclearization. Another way of putting it from a U.S. perspective is that um, Hanoi was not a missed opportunity because the North Koreans did not present us with an opportunity to miss. And until the North Koreans show and commit to the third element that they agreed to in the Singapore declaration, a, a, a commitment to a pathway toward complete denuclearization, it's going to be very difficult for the North Koreans to get much traction in terms of criticizing some of the various... Perceptions of difference in the Trump administration uh, on how do you achieve that objective. And so, really, I think that uh, what we need to see between the U.S. and North Korea is the continuation of talk. And uh, from my perspective, which is a little bit different from, uh, let's say, the Bolton perspective, you know, an appropriate outcome for a negotiation could be an exchange of declarations of intent between the U.S. and North Korea, accompanied by a set of actions that indicate seriousness of purpose toward that objective. And so what I'm talking about is, you know, on the North Korean side, a verbal commitment to complete denuclearization, accompanied by a set of actions that goes beyond what North Korea has done before, and that in terms of direction and scope, uh, indicate a possibility of actually getting to complete denuclearization. So
0: would this include actions like sort of letting international...
2: um, Um, Yes, Mm -hmm. there's a variety of ways that it could be done, but basically I think that the essential characteristics would be that the North Koreans would have to commit to inspections that go beyond Yongbyon Mm -hmm. or inspections at Yongbyon that go deeper Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of the comprehensiveness of the inspection, you know, that would lead to the possibility of getting to complete denuclearization. Uh, And so that's, I think, what the significance of the reports that the U.S. went for something beyond Yongbyon, you know, in Hanoi uh, was. But in my view, it doesn't necessarily have to be done, you know, in one bite. Instead, what we have to do is to affirm that we know where we're going as a prerequisite to starting a process that could play out, you know, based on the practical challenges and commitments of both sides. But let me just go back because, you know, on the US side, I think there is also a set of declarations and actions that the US can and I think was showing a willingness to take pre henway in the area of establishing diplomatic relationships, and pushing toward peace, which are items one and two of the Singapore Declaration. right? And so there are rumors in advance of Hanoi that the U.S. would be willing to establish liaison offices between Washington and Pyongyang. And also, I think that it would be appropriate for the U.S. to do something on tension reduction a non-aggression declaration, a statement of willingness to consider peace negotiations, you know some other set of actions that lead in that particular direction, as the U.S. of commitment to a normalization of relations with North Korea, which is what ostensibly North Korea has put forward as their objective, and really, in their own view words, uh, the essential prerequisite to moving forward on denuclearization.
0: I know we're not in the business of predicting things, but where do you think these summits will lead to? What
2: do you think we yeah Well, very dangerous to predict when it comes to North Korea, for sure. But it seems to me that we are at a point post-Hanoi where Kim Jong-un has uh, made significant progress in addressing the primary difficulty that he faced uh, post-Hanoi. Uh, and that was that post-Hanoi, he came out of it uh, looking weak. Uh, and so the most significant recalibration that was necessary post Hanway from Kim Jong-un's perspective is to restore the perception that he was entering into a negotiation process with the United States from a position of strength. That was the contention um, that the North Koreans had put forward from the very beginning of their interaction with the United States. It was a contention that the U.S. didn't recognize uh, on the U.S. side because Trump administration believes that North Korea was coming at it as a result of sanctions from a position of weakness. But still, from a North Korean perspective, um, the perception that they were weak is a huge problem for Kim Jong-un on a variety of levels. And so what has Kim Jong-un done uh, post-Hanoi? A, he has signaled the possibility of a return to provocations, but he has not crossed the threshold. He simply indicated that's a possibility. Secondly, he's diversifying his diplomatic options by eminently going and meeting with uh, President Putin of Russia. Uh, And thirdly, he gave a speech at his Supreme People's Assembly meeting uh, that essentially recalibrated the approach on the North Korean side. It affirmed that North Korea is approaching this from a position of strength. It took the interesting step of giving the U.S. a deadline for moving toward the North Korean position, Uh, it opened the possibility that North Korea would not focus entirely on sanctions removal as part of the process, Uh, and it suggested the possibility that if the right understanding, presumably at the working level, could be achieved, that there could be a third summit. So I think that we're at a stage where Kim Jong-un has now had the time to take the necessary steps to recover from the disappointment and really, in some ways, the humiliation of Hanoi, and can now and now is positioned uh, to reinitiate a process of dialogue with the United States. And we'll have to see whether that dialogue is reopened and whether it's possible to kind of achieve some objectives. And of course, that is going to be a difficult process, but it's a necessary process, and I believe that the U.S. should continue to pursue those types of challenges. One thing that makes it particularly difficult is that the North Koreans have also impugned the U.S. team, right? They've identified Bolton as a bad actor. They've said that they don't want to talk to Pompeo. Uh, Frankly, there are, I think, members of the North Korean negotiating team that the U.S. also does not enjoy working with. But it's really critical for there to be a working-level process established that can support a leader-level dialogue. Because a Trump Kim love affair on its own is not going to get the job done. You know, one way of putting this is that uh, you know, even if Trump and Kim themselves like each other, we're not going to have a happy result between the families if the principals elope. Uh, <laughs> this sounds
0: very much like an Indian marriage. <laughs> well,
2: uh, yes, and uh, so that is uh, you know one reason why what we're really after. Mm. Is to see the institutional enmity that has accumulated over decades between the U.S. and North Korea be replaced by some common project. Another way of thinking about this is uh, I mentioned earlier that as of 2017, the U.S. and North Korea were on different trajectories. And the way I imagined at that time is a Venn diagram in which you have two circles that don't intersect. Or another way of putting it is you know Trump and Kim are each in charge of their own respective spotlights on a stage. And their job should really be to push the spotlights together to the extent that there is some kind of intersection where the institutional bureaucracies on both sides can develop a record of working together in order to define a common purpose. And that is the first step that is necessary to be able to really address you know both the practical step of moving toward denuclearization and the historical record of enmity and a gap in perception and hostility between these two countries.
0: Okay, so this is my last question with you. For someone who's interested in reading more about, about summits and about nuclear issues in the Korean Peninsula. What
2: reading do you suggest? Mm -hmm. Okay, Uh, with regards to the failed record of U.S. North Korea diplomacy, is actually a very rich reading list uh, that deals with various stages of a challenge that has bedeviled U.S. negotiators over the course of the past uh, over two decades, back to the 1990s. And so, you know, there's a whole set of books, Uh, you know, going back to the 1990s. There's a Gallucci Poneman book, I think, uh, I can't remember the title right now, Gallucci Poneman Wit, that details the agreed framework negotiations. Mike Chinway has a a book about the Bush administration and six-party talks. Uh, There's also The Peninsula Question by Yoichi Funabashi, which deals with the six-party talks in a regional context. You know, more recently, I think the books that kind of give flavor to some of the U.S.-North Korea interaction would be Andrei Lankov's book, Real North Korea, and uh, Victor Cha's book, The Impossible State. But, um, you know, all of those books give different, snapshots. And over time, what we see is the evolution of a problem and really the complexification of a problem that originally was not as large, but has kind of continued to grow in scope and still remains unresolved and frankly has grown in magnitude to the point where it actually does have a global dimension of threat.
0: Thank you. Okay. Thank you. With that, we come to the end of this episode of States of Anarchy. Mr. Snyder mentioned quite a few books to read and you can find these resources in the episode description. If you have any comments or questions, then do reach out to me at the rate States of Anarchy on Instagram or at the rate Hamsani H on Twitter. You can listen to States of Anarchy not only on the IVM podcast app, but wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe, drop me a line, share it with your friends. And before you know it, We'll be back next
3: week. Hi, my name is Anupam Gupta. I'm B50 on Twitter. I am the host of Pesa Vesa, the show that talks money. On my show, I speak to experts from every field of money and finance from stock markets, equities, debt funds, credit cards, life insurance, every possible area of money and finance that you can think of. We even did an episode on cryptocurrency. I've got fantastic guests from mutual funds to personal finance experts everywhere. Robo advisory, startups, just name it, we've got it. At Pesa, Pesa we help you make smart decisions about money. You work hard for money, now make your money work hard for you. New episodes out every Monday and you can listen to my show on the IVM podcast app or any other podcasting app that you have. Is brought to you by Payture Money. You say jogging,
1: and I'm telling you a story about a man who dated three sisters. You say boss Kurla, and it's about a guy who went out to a party where they were selling beef. This is Anand Sivkumar and A.K. the Croc. My show, The Croc's Tales, you give me a word. I'll tell you a story. Words you. kehani aapke liye. Do tune in on Monday
3: and Thursday on the IBM website, app, and anywhere you get your podcast from.